great. You've been loading up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One USA NA. It's Thursday, the 20th of February, 2020. I'm Zanny Minton Beddoes, The Economist's editor in chief. Welcome to Editor's Picks, where you can hear three highlights from the paper this week. They're read aloud, so you can listen on the go. Our cover looks at the remarkable rise of the tech giants. The combined value of the five biggest American tech firms has grown by almost $2 trillion in the past 12 months. That's roughly equivalent to Germany's entire stock market. The surge has confounded predictions of an imminent tech clash. Consumers say they care about privacy, but act as if they care much more about getting stuff, preferably without having to pay for it. The tech giant's supersized valuations suggest their profits will double or so in the next decade. But as their economic and political power grows ever greater, it seems unlikely that the world will simply stand by and watch. Next, the boss of Amazon has promised to spend $10 million to fight climate change. As the world's richest man, that's around 8% of his net worth. How should Jeff Bezos spend it? And finally, our budget columnist on the Imperial Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. The stories you're about to hear are just a sample of what's on offer in the paper. To read or listen to all of it, subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. First up, investors think the tech lash is over. That judgment is premature. In 2018, a new word entered Silicon Valley's lexicon, the tech lash, or the risk of a consumer and regulatory revolt against big tech. Today, that threat seems empty. Even as regulators discuss new rules and activists fret about the right to privacy, the shares of the five biggest American tech firms have been on a jaw-dropping bull run over the past 12 months, rising by 52%. The increase in the firm's combined value of almost $2 trillion is hard to get your head round. It is roughly equivalent to Germany's entire stock market. Four of the five... Alphabet, Amazon, Apple and Microsoft are each now worth over $1 trillion. Facebook is worth a mere $620 billion. For all the talk of a tech clash, fund managers in Boston, London and Singapore have shrugged and moved on. Their calculus is that nothing can stop these firms, which are destined to earn untold riches. This surge in tech giant share prices raises two worries. One is whether investors have stoked a speculative bubble. The five firms, worth $5.6 trillion, make up almost a fifth of the value of the S&P 500 index of American shares. The last time the market was so concentrated was 20 years ago, before a crash that triggered a widespread downturn. The other opposite concern is that investors may be right. 
the big tech firm's supersized valuations suggest their profits will double or so in the next decade, causing far greater economic tremors in rich countries and an alarming concentration of economic and political power. The question of a bubble is a reasonable one. Tech cycles are an integral part of the modern economy. The 1980s saw a semiconductor boom. Then, in the 1990s, came PCs and the Internet. Each cycle fades or ends in a bust. Today's upswing got going in 2007 with the launch of the iPhone. By 2018, it too seemed to be showing its age. Sales of smartphones were stagnating. Data scandals at Facebook crystallised anger about the tech giant's flippant approach to privacy. Global antitrust regulators were on the alert. And the loss-making antics of flaky tech unicorns, such as Uber and WeWork, evoked the kind of speculative froth often seen at the tail end of a long boom. In fact, at least for the biggest tech giants, today's valuations are built on more solid foundations. Together, the five biggest firms have cranked out $178 billion of cash flow after investment in the past 12 months. Their size has yet to slow their expansion. Their median sales growth of 17% in the latest quarter is still as impressive as it was five years ago. Consumers say they care about privacy, but act as if they care much more about getting stuff and preferably without having to pay for it in cash. Since the end of 2018, the number of people using Facebook services, including Instagram, Messenger and WhatsApp, has risen by 11% to 2.3 billion. Regulators have punished tech firms for tax, privacy and competition misconduct, but so far their efforts have been like bringing a pea shooter to a gunfight. The fines and penalties they have imposed amount to less than 1% of the Big Five's market value, a tolerable cost of doing business. And the agonies of some of the unicorns and their biggest backer, SoftBank, have only demonstrated how hard it is to replicate the scale and network effects of the Big Five. Meanwhile, the size of the opportunity is vast. As our special report in this issue explains, many parts of the economy have yet to digitise. In the West, only a tenth of retail sales are online, and perhaps a fifth of computing workloads sit in the cloud with the likes of Amazon and Microsoft. Big tech operates globally, giving it more space to expand, especially in emerging economies where spending on digital technology is still relatively low. The trouble is that if you think that tech firms will get much bigger and diversify into more industries, from healthcare to agriculture, it is logical to assume that the backlash against them will not fade away, but eventually get bigger. As big tech scope expands, more non-tech firms will find their profits dented and more workers will see their livelihoods disrupted, creating angry constituencies. One crude measure of scale is to look at global profits relative to American GDP. By this yardstick, Apple, which is expanding into services, is already roughly as big as Standard Oil and US Steel were in 1910, at the height of their powers. 
Alphabet, Amazon and Microsoft are set to reach the threshold within the next 10 years. When recession strikes, it will fuel new resentments. Big tech could face a storm that few have yet paid much attention to. The big five firms employ 1.2 million people and are now by far the biggest investors in corporate America, spending almost $200 billion a year. Their decisions about whether to squeeze suppliers, slash investment or attack weaker rivals will prove as controversial as those of car makers when Detroit still ruled in the 1970s, or even of Wall Street in 2007 to 8. Big Tech's role in politics is already toxic. Social media and videos influence elections from Minnesota to Myanmar. All this means that far from having peaked, anger may be in the foothills. Executives hope that slick lobbying will protect them. But even today, the picture outside America is not of inaction, but a tumult of regulatory experiments. China keeps its internet giants under tacit state control and wants to rely less on Silicon Valley, including Apple, which is already dealing with the COVID-19 virus and other headwinds there. At least 27 countries have or are considering digital taxes. India has cracked down on e-commerce and online speech. The European Union, or EU, wants individuals to own and control their own data, an approach this newspaper favours, although it may take years of innovation to create a system that is easy for consumers to use and profit from. This week, the EU proposed curbs on artificial intelligence. Even in America, trustbusters may limit big tech's ability to gobble up startups, a strategy which has been instrumental to the success of Alphabet and Facebook in particular. The $5.6 trillion market value of tech's formidable five is a testament to some of the most commercially successful companies ever created. But it also assumes they will get a lot bigger even as the world stands by and watches placidly. Until today, big tech has been largely unscathed. The bigger it becomes, the more reason there is to doubt this can continue. Is building wealth one of your goals for 2020? If so, you're in luck. Diversity Fund is mixing tech with real estate in order to bring superior investment opportunities to everyone. Our new fund is SEC qualified to accept investments from all investors, accredited or not. With one investment on our online platform, you'll own a portfolio of institutional-grade commercial real estate assets, all without lifting a finger. Visit diversityfund.com economist to learn more and start investing today. You can make this year all about taking your wealth and your portfolio to the next level. One more time, visit diversityfund.com economist and use the code economist when you sign up to receive a $20 gift card after you make your first investment. Next, Jeff Bezos wants to help save the climate. Here's how he should do it. Jeff Bezos, the boss of Amazon and the world's richest man, has long had a reputation as a peculiarly frugal plutocrat. A quarter of a century after Amazon was founded, the firm, now worth over a trillion dollars, still does not pay dividends to its shareholders. Lately, though, his personal purse strings have loosened. Earlier this month, Mr Bezos paid $165 million for a mansion in Beverly Hills. On February 18th, 
he announced that he would be spending $10 billion, around 8% of his fortune, setting up the Bezos Earth Fund. Climate change, he said, was the biggest threat facing humanity and the fund's resources would be available to any effort that offered a real possibility to help preserve and protect the natural world. Mr Bezos has long been gripped by an environmentalist dream, albeit an unusual one. In the 1970s, Gerard O'Neill, a Princeton physicist, advocated moving industry into orbit so that Earth's environment could be repaired and preserved. Mr Bezos subscribes to this vision. He has invested billions of dollars in a rocketry firm, Blue Origin, devoted to the industrialization of space. Now he is turning to the preservation of the Earth. In the context of climate change, $10 billion is both a lot and a little. The Earth Fund will have to hand out at least $500 million a year to avoid tax penalties, and Mr Bezos could add to the pot. The next biggest climate donor, the Hewlett Foundation, disperses around $120 million a year in the area. But the scale of the problem dwarfs even Mr Bezos's vast resources. The cost of meeting the Paris Agreement, which aims to prevent the planet warming by more than 2 degrees Celsius compared with pre-industrial levels, has been estimated at 2.5% of the world's $86 trillion GDP every year. As a technically-minded space cadet, though, Mr Bezos surely knows his Archimedes. Moving the Earth is not a matter of brute force, but of finding the right lever. There are broadly two types of leverage open to him. One is political, turn the tide of opinion and politics in America, thereby adding a superpower's force to his efforts. The other is technological. Take things that the market is ignoring and build them up to the point where, in the right political environment, they can make money for other people. Then watch those other people do just that. The political route is risky. Existing philanthropies have spent a great deal of money trying to shift the debate in America to little avail. It is also potentially oversubscribed. Mike Bloomberg, another climate-conscious billionaire, is spending vast sums to try to oust Donald Trump from the White House. In technology, progress will come from putting large amounts in well-chosen areas outside the mainstream. There is little point in ploughing money into solar and wind power or electric vehicles. Better to focus on taking the risk out of things which the world needs but markets will not yet invest in. Building full-scale pilot plants for emissions-free steel smelting and concrete making would be helpful. So too would creating farms that maximise both crop yields and carbon storage, becoming sinks for greenhouse gases instead of sources. A smaller chunk of the fund could be reserved for technologies much further from acceptance. One such is solar geoengineering, cooling the earth by reflecting away some incoming sunlight. In most discussion of climate action, this approach, widely seen as unpalatable and dangerous, is sidelined. Although by no means a silver bullet or even necessarily a desirable strategy, assessing how it might be undertaken in a responsible way deserves more attention. Funding is feeble at present, 
perhaps $20 million a year worldwide. Mr Bezos could double that at the stroke of a pen. His goal of creating a new civilization in the heavens to save Earth remains far-fetched and to many unattractive. But he does not need to achieve that to speed up the fight against climate change. He just needs to spend copiously but wisely. And that is how he got rich in the first place. And finally, Boris Johnson is accumulating power in number 10. The Emperor Nero was reportedly in the habit of dipping dissidents in tar and using them to light his dinner parties. Boris Johnson has not so far shown an inclination to use his ministers as human torches, but there is nevertheless something imperial about his progress. He dispenses with colleagues with a chilling nonchalance. He barrels into Prime Minister's questions every Wednesday, his shirt-tail flapping behind him to the cheers of the massed Tory benches. A recent cabinet meeting opened with a bizarre call-and-response chant, with the Prime Minister bellowing a series of questions, how many hospitals are we going to build, and so on, and ministers replying in unison. The American presidency is imperial by nature. Presidents live in a big white house and get ferried about town in an armoured car nicknamed the Beast. Directly elected by the people, they are exceedingly hard to remove from office. The British Prime Ministership is more malleable. Herbert Asquith, a liberal who held the office in the early 20th century, observed that it is ultimately what the holder chooses and is able to make it. Prime Ministers have few resources. They work with a small staff in a pokey townhouse, and their autonomy is limited, since they serve at the pleasure of their party. Theresa May spent three years being tormented by her fellow Tories before her miserable demise. Three things determine whether they will be emperors or wimps. The nature of their personality, the quality of the people sitting around the cabinet table, and the size of their majority. In Mr Johnson's case, all three dials are turned to maximum imperial. His biography of Britain's greatest Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, was a disguised mission statement. He also has an imperial taste for vengeance. He cites The Godfather as his favourite film for the multiple retribution killings at the end. While Margaret Thatcher had big figures such as Geoffrey Howe and Nigel Lawson, who eventually assassinated her around her cabinet table, and Tony Blair had his nemesis Gordon Brown, this Churchill wannabe has nobody who can stand up to him. He is not so much primus inter pares, Walter Badgett's description of a prime minister, as primus inter poodles. His only powerful colleague so far is his chief strategist and conciliere, Dominic Cummings, whom he can sack at will. Mr Johnson's 80-seat majority has also issued him with a blank cheque. The majority is in many ways a personal one. Millions of people voted Tory, many for the first time, because of the combination of his personality and his message of getting Brexit done. It enables him to steamroller opposition. This willingness to assert power goes along with a sense of fragility. Mr Johnson is in office thanks to the votes of people who had lost faith in politics. He knows that he will retain their support only if he can deliver for them, which is why the word delivery is on every minister's lips these days. 
That means delivering not just Brexit, but also the things for which Brexit is a surrogate. A better deal for the North, more police and hospitals, government support for the just-about managing. Mr Johnson calculates that in order to honour his promises to the electorate, he needs to assert the supremacy of Number 10 and to treat departments of state less as centres of power than as delivery mechanisms. Mr Cummings is at the heart of this centralisation project. He is pushing forward with his long-cherished plan of turning ministers' special advisers, or SPADs, into a sort of new model army that sees its primary loyalty as being to number 10 rather than to individual ministers. On February 13th, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Sajid Javid, resigned rather than agree to the merger of number 11's advisers with those at number 10. Mr Cummings is also succeeding in spreading fear across Whitehall. When the eye of Sauron is off the Whitehall machine, a senior Downing Street figure told the Sun newspaper in menacing Cummings speak, things stop working. What are we to make of Mr Johnson's imperial turn? Critics worry that the last thing an over-centralised country needs is more centralisation of power. Other experiments with hyperactive regimes in Downing Street had lamentable side effects. Mrs Thatcher left local government shriveled. They also worry about destroying the checks and balances that prevent Number 10 from making big mistakes or spending money that the country doesn't have. But these worries need to be set against two considerations. The first is that there is nothing inherently sinister about Mr Johnson's plan to encourage Numbers 10 and 11 to work more closely together. On the contrary, the Treasury's traditional practice of keeping Number 10 in the dark about its budget and spending plans has led to embarrassments, as when Philip Hammond raised taxes on the self-employed, only to have to reverse himself almost immediately because he had forgotten the manifesto pledge. The idea that Number 10 will steamroll the Treasury because its spads sit on a committee with Treasury spads is absurd. The Treasury has more than a thousand civil servants to rely on. The power of the Chancellor depends largely on his abilities, and Rishi Sunak, the new Chancellor, is more talented than his predecessor. The second point is that beefing up Number 10 is no bad thing, at least in the short term. The government is confronted with two of the biggest problems Britain has faced since the Second World War, taking Britain out of the EU and addressing the political discontent that led to Brexit. It needs a thriving policy unit to develop an economic model to replace, or at least to adjust, the one that has prevailed since the 1980s. It needs an updated version of Mr Blair's delivery unit to monitor the government's success or otherwise in achieving its goals. The real problem with Emperor Boris is not that he is gathering power. He probably needs to do more of it. It is that his government is frittering away its authority by picking fights with judges and journalists rather than focusing on delivering its core promises. Thanks for listening to Editor's Picks. To read or listen to the whole of this week's edition, go to economist.com slash radiooffer to get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Zanny Minton-Bellows, and in London, this is The Economist. Capital One has a fresh take on banking. Now you can open a new savings account in about five minutes. 
and earn five times the national average. Banking with Capital One means five times the savings toward your dream honeymoon, or five times the savings toward your family's ultimate vacation, even five times the savings toward just feeling good about saving. It's time to make your savings goals come true. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC.